0: Amen. Well, church, so glad that you're here with us this morning. As you're having a seat, uh, you will notice, uh, although I don't think we got enough of them, but... In about every other chair, we have scripture journals, and they're little black booklets, and they're simply just, uh, on one side, it's God's Word, it's the book of Ruth, which we are starting today. On the other side are just blank pages uh, with lines, and it's meant for you to engage and interact with God's Word as we preach through this book throughout this summer. And so we just wrapped up Ephesians, and today we are beginning the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And so... Um, I'm going to read the text that we're going to be in this morning, jump right in, uh, and we will get started here in Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, we're going to just get through the first six verses, so we're not going to go very long today. Um, we're not going very far, but we'll, we'll, we'll just keep trucking away all summer long. Uh, it begins this way, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons, And these took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. And then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. So why Ruth? Why are we going to spend the summer walking through this book? I, I would imagine not a, not a lot of us have a lot of working knowledge of the book of Ruth. In fact, uh, we barely can pronounce some of the names that are listed in here, and we're going to have a hard time maybe piecing together where this is happening and what's taking place. So why Ruth? Well, first of all, Ruth is one of the best short stories ever written. Ruth is one of the greatest and best and most well-respected short stories ever written. And we are a people. God has wired us as people in such a way that we're motivated by stories. We're moved by stories, right? We hear stories. We watch stories. That's why if you're a social media person, when you're scrolling through and you see one of those things that start moving and it's a video of someone, you, we're, we get sucked into story, right? We love stories. The phrase is once upon a time and they lived happily ever after, are almost like baked into us through osmosis. It's like we're born just knowing those. We we love good stories, don't we? And Ruth has all the elements of a perfectly written story. It has very complex characters. Uh, the, The setting is intense, and it's during a very dark time in Israel's history, in God's people's history. And the plot involves this beautiful story of redemption, which in fact is part of the grand story of our redemption in Jesus, right? So Jesus, in fact, tracks his lineage back to Ruth, which is why this is so important. And so this is an important book in the scriptures. In this story, we've got conflict, we've got tragedy, we've got betrayal, we have love, and ultimately we have redemption, all in four four short chapters in the book of Ruth. Ruth is even regarded by non Christian scholars, by non Christian literary experts, as one of the greatest literary short stories ever written, displaying love, loss, and redemption. It is a highly, highly respected piece of literature, even outside of Christendom. Interesting, right? And that's an amazing accomplishment, considering that this little book was written about 3,100 years ago. Isn't that amazing? 3,100 years ago, this is regarded as one of the most complete and perfect short stories ever written. Now, in this story, if you were an Israelite or you were a Jew, this would have been a very familiar and widely understood story by you because this told the story of God's people. It was a reflection of a story of God's people. And unfortunately, today, we just... We, a lot of times, especially when Old Testament stories come up, we just don't have the context for it. The geography is confusing. The names are confusing. The themes can be a little bit like what's happening? How do you piece all this together? Why Ruth? Why study a 3,100 year old short story? What's going on here? And so, what I wanted to do, we've never done this before, but I thought it might be helpful, uh, is uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a resource called The Bible Project, and they're online uh, Bible study tools, resources, and they also do videos for each book of the Bible, and what they do is they help piece together uh, an overview of all that's happening in every single book of the Bible. And they do it visually. And so what I thought I would do, rather than me get up here and try to explain it without nice... Sometimes we do better with pictures, right? With stories, sometimes comes cool pictures. And they do a great job. Some of us are visual learners. learners, Some of us are more... um, auditory learners and so I what I wanted to do is show this video it's about five minutes long we've never done it but they do a wonderful job of showing the meta-narrative if you will of the story and I think it will give us uh it'll give us a bedrock of understanding as we start teaching through it and we're going to link this uh in our sermon notes and on the website so in case anyone missed it or you want to go back and watch it so let's watch this short short five minute video of an overview of Ruth.
1: the book of Ruth. It's a brilliant work of theological art and it invites us to reflect on the question of how God is involved in the day-to-day joys and hardships of our lives. There are three main characters in the book, Naomi the widow, Ruth the Moabite, and Boaz the Israelite farmer. And their story is told in four chapters that are beautifully designed. Let's just dive in and see how this all unfolds. Chapter 1 opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. And it reminds us of the very dark and difficult days from the book of Judges. And here we meet an Israelite family in Bethlehem, struggling to survive through a famine. And so in search of food, they move on to the land of Moab, Israel's ancient enemy. And there, the father of the family dies. And the sons marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. And then the sons, they die too. And so they leave only Naomi and these new daughters-in-law. And so Naomi, she has no reason to stay anymore. And so she tells her new daughters-in-law that she's moving back home. And Naomi, she knows that the life of an unmarried foreign widow in Israel is going to be very hard. And so she compels the women to stay behind. Orpah agrees But Ruth does not. She shows remarkable loyalty to Naomi. And she says, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Your people will become my people and your God will become my God. And so the two of them return to Israel together. And the chapter concludes with Naomi changing her name to Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew. And she laments her tragic fate. Chapter 2 begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing where they're going to find and it just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest. And so Ruth goes out to look for food and it just so happens that she ends up picking grain in the field of a man named Boaz who just so happens to be Naomi's relative. We're told that Boaz is a man of noble character and he notices Ruth. And so after finding out more about her story, He shows remarkable generosity to her. He makes these special provisions so that the immigrant Ruth can gather grain in his field. And in doing so, Boaz is actually obeying an explicit command of the Torah to show generosity to the immigrant and the poor. Boaz is so impressed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi. He prays for her that God will reward her for her boldness. So Ruth comes home that day and Naomi finds out that she met Boaz and she is Thrilled, She says, Boaz is their family redeemer. Now, this family redeemer thing, this was a cultural practice in Israel where if a man in the family died and he left behind a wife or children or land, it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry that widow, to take up the land and protect that family. So Naomi, she begins to hope that perhaps there might still be a future for her family. Chapter 3 begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan to get Boaz to notice their situation. So Ruth is going to stop wearing clothes of a grieving widow and she's going to show signs that she's available to be married. And so Ruth goes to meet Boaz on the farm that night. And as she approaches, Boaz wakes up and he's totally startled. And Ruth makes her intentions very clear. She asks if Boaz will redeem Naomi's family and marry Boaz is once again amazed by Ruth's loyalty to Naomi and her family and he calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's the same term used to describe the woman of Proverbs 31. So Boaz tells Ruth to wait until the next day and he will redeem both Ruth and Naomi legally before the town elders. And so the chapter ends with Ruth returning to Naomi and they marvel together at all of these recent events. In chapter 4 it all comes together. It turns out, at the last minute, Boaz discovers there is a family member who's closer to Naomi than he is, and he's actually eligible before him to redeem the family. But at the last second, this family member finds out that he's going to have to marry Ruth, the Moabite, and so he declines. But Boaz, remember, he knows Ruth's true character, and so he acquires the family property of Naomi, and he marries Ruth. And so just at the beginning, how Ruth was loyal to Naomi's family, so now Boaz is loyal to Naomi's family as well. The story concludes with a reversal of all of the tragedies from chapter 1. So the death of the husband and the sons is reversed as Ruth is married again and gives birth to a new son, granting joy to Naomi. And this symmetry between the opening and the closing, it's even more remarkable. So remember, the opening tragedy was followed by a great act of loyalty on the part of Ruth. And that is now matched by Boaz's act of loyalty that leads to the family's final restoration. And this symmetry, it highlights the design of the internal chapters as well. So each of the chapters begins with Naomi and Ruth making a plan for their future. And that's followed by a providential meeting between Ruth and Boaz, and each chapter concludes with Naomi and Ruth rejoicing at what's taken place. This story is beautifully designed, and that design actually connects with a really interesting feature of the story, and that's how little God is mentioned. Right? The characters talk about God a few times, but the narrator actually never once mentions God doing anything directly in the story, and that's its brilliance because God's providence is at work behind every scene of this story, weaving together the circumstances and choices of all these characters. So Naomi, her tragedy leads her to think that God is punishing her, but actually the whole story is about God's mission to restore her and her family. And he's doing so through Ruth, through her boldness and loyalty, which brings healing to Naomi's life, but not without Boaz, who's a no-nonsense farmer, who's full of generosity and loyalty. And so God uses his integrity combined with Ruth's boldness to save Naomi and her family. And so this story brilliantly explores the interplay of God's purposes and will with human decision and will. God weaves together the faithful obedience of his people to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world. And that leads to the real end of the story. The book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy showing how Boaz and Ruth's son, Oved, was the grandfather of King David, from whom came the lineage of the Messiah. And so all of a sudden, these seemingly mundane, ordinary events in this story are woven into God's grand story of redemption for the whole world. And so the book of Ruth invites us to consider how God might be at work in the very ordinary, mundane details of our lives as well. And that's what the book of Ruth is all about.
0: Pretty interesting, huh? I thought about trying to draw that up here with one of those things too, but thought y'all might have got lost. So I totally could have, but no. I just that my—you can barely read my handwriting; it's bad. So they do a great job. So I would uh, recommend BibleProject.org. Is that them? Yeah. Not com, but org. Yeah, they're great. And so they do that for every book of the Bible. A lot of great tools and resources. So here we have Ruth. This is why we're studying it. This is. God's sovereignty is paired up with human responsibility and choices, and we see the hand of God working amongst these two unlikely characters. I thought, what an, what an amazing story to just walk through as God's people here at Providence North. And so we've got these two unlikely people, right? They meet and they fall in love in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of loss, right? We love stories of redemption like this. Our hearts are drawn to them. We, we love these. We love the stories of unlikely characters uniting in love, don't we? That's why we love stories like Beauty and the Beast, right? We've got the Beauty and the Beast, right? It's, it's like, how is this happening? And how do they fall in love? In fact, a little tidbit about me, summer stock, I think like 1989, I played the Beast in a summer play, and it, I was remarkable in it. So I've got a lot of experience with the story of Beauty and the Beast, um, my mother probably has pictures of me in the, in the costume. Um, sound of music, right? We've got a failed nun and a military captain. It's like, what? How is we... We're so drawn in by these stories, these unlikely characters. Maybe a little bit more modern, uh, albeit very strange, and it was a phenomenon, and I still don't understand why. Twilight, a human and a vampire. One's 18, one's 118. Why are we so drawn in by these unlikely love stories? We, we just, we cannot get enough of it, right? And we certainly have this here in Ruth. We have two very unlikely people. We have an Israelite gentleman and a Moabite widow. So let's dig in here. How does this book begin? Well, it begins with a sojourn. It begins with a leaving. Um, and then it's going to continue on in chapter one, and it's going to have Ruth's return. And then it's gonna have her arrival. So we have a sojourn, a return, and an arrival. And so we're just gonna hit these first two today and we'll save the arrival for next week. And so uh, we're gonna look uh, at chapter one, just a few verses, and it begins with some really devastating words in these opening five verses. Here's the first verse that we read. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem, of Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. These words are devastating. This is meant, when, if you were to read this, and you were an Israelite reading this, this is meant to shock you. This is, like, this is a tough beginning to this book. These are, these are words like this. This is like starting out a story with one of these. Hey, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work out anymore. Those are devastating words. It's like starting a story and saying, um, brace for impact from a pilot. It's meant to hook you. It's like, what? How, th- those, that's not good news. It's from a doctor. I'm sorry we found something. Or there's nothing more we can do. This is the type of beginning that Ruth gives us. These are devastating words. And it takes place in the time of the judges. This was a dark time. Right? And we're told that there's a famine in the land. This means there's a sign of judgment on God's people. All throughout scripture, famine typically symbolized God's judgment of his people. And it gets worse. In verses 2 through 5, we read of three funerals. It doesn't get any better. And we're left with a widow in a foreign land and her two daughters-in-law. But throughout all of this, there's an even bigger problem that we have that we only read if we read the genealogy like the video mentioned. Um, And the biggest problem here concerns Israel's royal line. It concerns the king, the promise of a king one day to God's people. And this crisis involves this widow and it involves a Ruth, right? And the threat is, will there be no more sons? The sons have died. Will God provide a king for his people? Will he provide a worthy king for his people through this royal line? Right, God, God promises to send a king in Israel, and in Judges, that promise is threatened, which Ruth is right after that book, because of widespread unfaithfulness of God's people. And in Ruth, this same threat is real because of death and loss of the two sons. So it's meant to mirror Israel's plight, what Israel's going through. Will God provide? Will he give us our king that we've been hoping for? Will God come through? right and so you can think about this throughout the book of uh, of Ruth is this this enduring of the royal line is this is God going to come through in the what seems like bleak circumstances what seems impossible what seems like could never happen can God take the interplay of all of these different things happening and take it for himself and make it for his good and glory in the end Can he weave together that which seems impossible? Can he bring redemption to what seems so unlikely? And we're given a hint of this problem, this royal line, uh, when we see verse 2, Elimelech's Ephrathite lineage, right? We could dig way back and go into all that, but that's why it mentions that he's an Ephrathite, because of this royal line. And that's the question that the book of Ruth in this story is wanting us to answer. Will the king come? The sons are no longer here. How will the line continue? Will God's promise not come to fruition? And so we have all of that, and then we learn, then we have these funerals. Will God come through? And then it says, there's famine in the land. And the famine reaches Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And so this is why this story is so beautifully written. It's, it's, pie- it's piecing all, it's building all of these layers and says, there's famine in the house of bread, meaning, or there's no bread in the house of bread. This is how dire the situation is. This is how bad it is. This is meant to shock us. How on earth do you not have bread in the house of bread? Right? And how famine in the Old Testament was, was used often to get people's attention to help them turn and run back to God. And here we see Elimelech, rather than turn to God for help, he runs. And in fact, uh, Judges, that was mentioned uh, at the very beginning, the very last verse of Judges, which Josh mentioned to me just this week, says this, there was no king in the kingdom and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So here's Elimelech living out that verse saying, you know what, I'm just going to do right in my own eyes. I got to get out of here because I'm going to go try to find some food. I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to run from God. And so Elimelech with his family takes them and runs. Now his journey at first seems to be quick. Maybe a quick drive through to look for some food, right? But then we see this progression. He just, it, it goes longer and longer. And then in verse two, it says they remained. And then it says Naomi ends up living in Moab for 10 years, verse four tells us. 10 years. And so this is meant to be shocking as well. What we see here is that God's people. In the land of bread, in the land of provision that God had placed them in, felt more at home in the land of compromise than in the land of promise. This is a shocking start to the story. You, you're supposed to read and think, what? How are they staying there? Why are they staying there? Why did they leave? Why don't they trust the Lord? They feel more at home in the land of compromise than the land of promise because they want to fill their bellies. Thank goodness we don't struggle with that today, Right? Verse 2, Elimelech took with him his wife, Naomi, which means pleasant or sweet, or as Ashley calls me, sweetie pie. All right? She doesn't really. Um, And then they also took with them their two sons, Malon and Kilion. Now, these may sound like kind of really cool, like Lord of the Rings style names, and you're like, Man, those are some really rad names. I'm going to, have to bust those out for my next newborn son. We've got a lot of babies that are in the back, our babies that are even coming. Don't do that. That's a bad idea, okay? Very bad idea. Do not name any of your children Malon or Killion. Why? Because Malon means sick and Killion means dying. Here's my two boys, sick and dying, right? You're like, whoa, man, this is, a, this is getting, starting off real good here. For old Naomi, right? Uh, they're sweet boys, sick and dying. Just don't mind them. They're just going to do their thing, right? Now, I don't think, many, most scholars don't believe those are actually their real names, okay? They're, they're it's part of the short story to give us context and foreshadowing of their impending fate, unfortunately, right? Sick and dying will eventually become sick and die, right? Imagine that. Um, and then they go off to Moab. And Moab has quite a history. We could spend six weeks on just the Moabite history. It just, just a quick understanding of why this would be shocking that God's people would go to Moab, that Israelites would go into Moab to look for food. Moab traces its lineage, traces its history, its beginning back from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. These were brutal people. They were not friends of God, and they were not friends of Israelites. And so these were some, these were some not friendly folks. And Elimelech says, let's take sweetie pie and sick and dying over here to these folks, Right? And you're reading this and you're like, what is going on here? And so what this is meant to do to us, what we're supposed to feel here is that Elimelech has turned his back on God. He's run to an enemy land to do what is right in his own eyes to fill his belly with food. He leaves spiritual blessing and the promise of God that God had called him to for the practical outworkings of things that he think will work that he's figured out on his own. Good thing we don't ever struggle with that either, huh? Instead of turning to God, he turns from God for pragmatics, what made more sense on paper. And the scene gets worse. Verses three through five, Naomi loses her husband first, and then she's left with these two sons who marry Moabite women, and this would have been shocking too, and they marry Orpah and Ruth, so we get the namesake of the book that enters into the story. And yet, in the midst of their running, in the midst of this being in enemy territory, in the midst of sin, and in the hu- midst of hunger, in the midst of death, and in darkness, God can take all of this mess. God can take all of this tragedy. God can take all of this running. God can take all of this turning our backs on him and thinking, I'm gonna run to fill my belly away from your promise. God can take all of this and work it out for his glorious purposes. This is the story of Ruth. This is a wonderful story. And I see my story in many ways as I read these words. And so we're left here in verses four and five with Naomi. Can you imagine her grief? Can you imagine what she's going through? Funeral after funeral after funeral. Her husband and her boys. Picture this. She is a widow in a foreign land, she has no significance, she has no husband, she has no sons. Consequently, she has no social standing and she has no hope to carry on her family line. And I think uh, maybe at some point in some of our lives we can maybe identify with Naomi's grief when we've walked through trouble, when we've walked through tragedy, when we've walked through hardship, when we've walked through loss. When we look up at the end of the day and we're thinking, it feels hopeless. What, what do I do now? Where do I go from here? Naomi's greatest need is hope. Because she has none. Naomi didn't know how things were going to turn out. Now, we've got the privilege of knowing the whole story, especially after that beautiful illustration, right? We get the end of the story. But it's a story that goes from emptiness to fullness. It goes from tragedy to glory, And so the question, another question embedded in this wonderful book, is can you still trust God in the midst of emptiness and tragedy? That's a question for you and I too. Can we still trust God? Can we still trust in what He says and His promises that He can take sometimes the mess of our situations, the mess of our decisions that we've made, the mess of our turning our back on Him, and can He make something glorious as a result? Can you trust him in the midst of all of it, even when you've fumbled and you've fallen? Can you say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord? That's how it all begins. It's an intense start of this story. And secondly, we now we get to the return. And the key word in this section beginning in verse 6 is return. In fact, it says it 12 times in chapter 1, return, 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 return. And it's symbolic of what God is doing in the hearts of his people. They're going to return to Bethlehem. It's also a spiritual return for Ruth. It's the most pivotal point in her story. And in the entire story, we're going to see an enemy of God be made a daughter of God. Ruth returning to God. A child of God finally being brought near, once an enemy, now being made a daughter of God. It's a pivotal point in the redemptive history as Ruth turns toward God. It's her conversion. We're not going to get into all that today. Uh, We'll see more of that in the weeks to come. But watch this in verse 6. And we're almost done today. Verse 6 says, this is talking about Naomi. Naomi. And she arose, Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God, her God, had returned. He's back, famine is lifted. He's brought food back to Bethlehem. He's brought bread back to the land of bread. And so now we finally read A little bit of good news here in this story. Redemption starts to pop up. Even in these just six verses in. So much is packed in here. Covenant blessings have returned to the land of promise for God's people. The Lord had visited his people with food. The Lord had visited his people. That's tremendous news. Now, like the video said, the writer of Ruth only mentions the Lord twice. The narrator never mentions the Lord, but it's the, the Lord is mentioned two times in the book, right here in verse 6, and at the very end of the book. And it's in always both times in reference to the Lord providing something for his people. The Lord giving something to his people. Blessings from God. And here God gives food. That which was their greatest need. And so right here, in six short verses packed with so much truth, so much tragedy, loss, grief, we see a thread of redemption. The Lord visits his people in their greatest time of need. That's our story too. Grace, a thread of grace is right here. The Lord visits his people. Our God is a God that visits strangers and makes them sons and daughters. That's what our God can do in a faraway land, even though we've run, even though we've gone the opposite way, even though we've made home in the land of compromise rather than the land of promise, our God still comes after us and can visit even enemies and strangers. That is great news, that that's the kind of God that we serve and we sing to and we gather because of. God visits his people and provides for them in their greatest time of need. Our God is a God who visits even in our running. Amen? It's good news. Our God can take the most unlikely circumstances, the most unlikely people, and turn them for His glory and for our good. And so today, we get to see a symbol of that, if you will. We get to see uh, today, firsthand, through baptism that we still worship and sing and serve a God that visits his people. Because today we're going to walk outside out of these doors here in a few minutes after we sing, and we're going to see the fruit of the fact that God visits his people through Jesus Christ and brings life where there was none and brings hope where there was none and binds us together as God's people. This is great news. Our God is a God that visits even the undeserving. And so we're going to celebrate the visiting of God through salvation and Jesus through baptism, right? Because, and this is, the story is so great, because the great, 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 however many great grandmother of Jesus, who was once an enemy of God, became a daughter of God, and through that very lineage, our Redeemer came, our Savior came, and Jesus now comes to you and I, that's... Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus visited you and I, that we could have life now, right? Jesus came down for us and now gives us life in him. And so that's what we get to celebrate, that our God is still a God that visits his people and gives grace to the undeserving and shines in the most unlikely places, even in the darkness. And so that's what we're going to celebrate. That's why we sing, and that's why we're reading the book of Ruth, because of these glorious, redemptive themes thread all through it and gives us context and gives us hope and gives us joy. Let's pray together, church, and we'll sing one last song. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you that you are a God that visits us. We thank you that, um, that even in the midst of running, even in the midst of circumstances we might find ourselves wrapped up in, even in the midst of tragedy and loss, even in the midst of all of these things, God, that you still in your grace and kindness visit us and you provide for us. And you have... (laughs) Provided for us to such a degree that you sent your only son Jesus for us, that he visited us. He left his throne in heaven and came down to earth, that whoever should believe in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. And it's in Jesus that we place our hope and trust, because the King of Kings has visited us. And he rains down on us glory and hope and grace to the undeserving. And that's good news for me. And so we cling to the gospel, the great story of the visiting of God amongst his undeserving people. Lord, we didn't earn it. In fact, we were running, and you brought us back. And Lord, we thank you that we're gonna get to see uh, your chasing after your people through baptism today. What a joy and honor that will be. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. May it change us and shape us and mold us. In Christ's name we pray.